Dating back to 1080, Newcastle upon Tyne's oldest building has seen more than its fair share of bloodshed, torture, suffering and death. Dark shadows, chanting monks and the tragic spirit of a young girl who met an unimaginable end within this historic castle. Tonight, join me as we dare to step foot inside the ancient fortress of Newcastle's Castle Keep. Welcome to episode 2 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we head to my hometown of Newcastle-upon-Tyne and ask the question, just how haunted is the Castle Keep? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. In 1080, Robert Curthose, eldest son of William the Conqueror, founded a new castle in Monkchester. This was now known as Novum Castellum, meaning New Castle. It was a Motton Bailey type construction on the site of a cemetery, the building of which disturbed hundreds of graves below the foundations. The fortified castle, named the Castle Garth, was enclosed within a clay rampart, topped with a wooden palisade and surrounded by an external ditch. Between 1168 and 1178, King Henry I ordered that the castle be rebuilt in stone at a cost of £1,144. A rectangular stone keep was built, 
and a triangular stone bailey was built to replace the existing wooden one. During the construction, William the Lion of Scotland led an invasion, but was captured and held in the castle. Evidence of this interruption is present to this very day, with a 15-step staircase coming to an abrupt stop against a wall on the second floor of the castle's keep. The castle's barbican, a fortified gateway, was built between 1247 and 1250. It would later be known as the Black Gate, named after wealthy London merchant Patrick Black, who leased the gatehouse in the 17th century. Work began on the town walls in 1272 to repel Scottish invaders. The wall was almost two miles long and two metres thick. In 1296, Braveheart himself, William Wallace, led the Scottish army south, destroying Corbridge in Northumberland, but avoiding the heavily defended Newcastle. The following year, Wallace, alongside Andrew de Moray, led the Scots to victory over the English at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. Wallace and de Moray then led the Scots south, almost reaching Newcastle, but turning away and marching to Carlisle instead. In 1305, William Wallace was executed in London. It was a horrific death, which you may have seen in the movie. He was hanged, drawn and quartered. Strangled by hanging, but released while he was still alive. Emasculated, eviscerated, and his bowels and intestines burnt before his eyes. He was beheaded, then cut into four parts. His right arm section was displayed on the bridge at Newcastle, with a number of his internal organs and other unnamed parts of his anatomy being displayed on the walls of the castle keep. In 1323, Andrew de Harkler, the first Earl of Carlisle, was executed for treason, and in another bloody display, one of his quarters was placed upon the castle walls. In the year 1400, Newcastle became a town and a county, separated from the jurisdiction of Northumberland. This was granted by Henry IV at the request of Roger Thornton, the Mayor of Newcastle. However, the castle Garth and its land remained part of Northumberland. Due to the change in political situation, the strategic importance of the castle had declined massively, and the castle keep became Northumberland's county jail. Newcastle's jail was at Newgate within the town walls. Criminals wanted for offences within Newcastle simply took up sanctuary within the castle walls, therefore technically being within the county of Northumberland and safe from being brought to justice despite being separated from the county of Newcastle by only a few feet. The conditions for prisoners held at the castle keep were horrendous. Due to being overcrowded, petty thieves, often children, would be thrown into cells with murderers. These thieves would often lose their lives within that cell at the hands of these convicted killers. There were no segregation, women and men being placed in cells together, resulting in a large number of women and girls in their early teens, or even younger in some cases, being raped by the male prisoners. Disease was rife due to the conditions that the prisoners lived in, among rats and human waste. The number of people who died of illness while being held at the castle keep runs into the hundreds. Another grisly public display on the castle keep walls took place in the year 1415, when a quarter of the executed Harry Hotspur was placed there after his execution for the Percy family's part in the rebellion against Henry IV. In 1589, Queen Elizabeth granted the Newcastle authorities permission to cross into the castle grounds and arrest those criminals taking refuge. 
By this point, the upkeep of the castle keep had been neglected for over 200 years and began to fall into disrepair. The walls were beginning to crumble and the roof of the keep was no longer there. The prisoners being held there could be stood in up to six inches of water in the winter months. In 1593, Edward Waterson attempted to escape from Newcastle jail by burning down his cell door. He was caught and executed. His head was cut off and placed upon a spike outside the Newgate jail as a warning to others. His body was cut into three pieces and displayed across the town. Part of the West Curtain Wall collapsed in 1620, but in 1638 the castle was partially rebuilt and strengthened as war with the Scots looked likely. The Scottish invaded Newcastle in 1640 and occupied the town for a year, leaving in August 1641 after being paid £300,000 by the English government to do so. The Civil War once again saw Royalist Newcastle under heavy attack from the Parliamentarian Scots in 1644. The castle was defended bravely but ultimately fell. The town was occupied once more by the Scots until 1647. Fourteen women found guilty of witchcraft and one man guilty of wizardry were hanged on Newcastle town war between 1650 and 1686. They spent their final days in the bowels of the castle keep in a room called the garrison room, shackled to the wall. The rings used to chain these prisoners can still be seen on the central pillar in the room. In 1685, James II declared that the castle Garth become part of Newcastle and therefore subject to the town's bylaws. On the 7th of December 1733, a local showman placed an advert claiming he would fly from the top of the castle keep. A large crowd gathered to watch this amazing feat. As the time drew closer, the showman began to lose his nerve and decided to strap the wings he had fashioned to his faithful donkey instead. The donkey was pushed over the edge and fell a hundred feet to the ground. Amazingly, the donkey survived, landing on an unfortunate onlooker who died instantly. By the end of the 18th century, the castle had further fallen into ruin. Houses had been built within the castle walls. The chapel in the keep was being used as a beer cellar by the landlord of the Three Bulls Head and the Black Gate had became a slum tenement. In 1810, the Newcastle Corporation bought the ruined Castle Garth for 600 guineas and began to restore it. By 1813, the castle keep had been fully restored and was open to the public as a tourist attraction. During the rebuilding process, there was a tragic accident at the castle. The authorities decided to fire a cannon shot from the roof of the keep each day at noon. On the 7th of May 1812, gunner John Robson fired a shot from the cannon. He loaded up for a second shot, but had forgot to swab out the cannon as he loaded the second ball. The powder within the cannon was still burning and fired the ball while Robson's hand was still on it. It blew his right hand clean off and the force threw him over the side of the keep, a hundred feet to the ground below and to his death. Between 1847 and 1849, a railway was built through the centre of the Castle Garth, splitting it in two. It looked likely that the remaining Castle Keep and Blackgate would be demolished, until the Society of Antiquaries acquired the remains of the Castle Garth, clearing the surrounding land and employing the services of celebrated architect John Dobson to carry out further restoration. During World War II, the garrison room was used as an air raid shelter, and the keep roof was used as a fire warden's post and an air raid post. Archaeological excavation started in 1960 at the castle, being completed in 1992. Evidence of the Roman fort was found, 
along with the Anglo-Saxon burials in the Christian cemetery. However, there was also evidence of earlier occupation, with flint flakes and a stone axe predating the Roman artefacts by up to 700 years. The Black Gate was a museum ran by the Society of Antiquaries until 1959. It was left empty after that mostly, although it was briefly used as a bagpipe museum, and the Society continued to use it as an office space and a library. In more recent years, Enterprise and Paranormal groups have used it to run ghost walks and ghost hunts. This is made much easier for them by the fact that it's accessible to anybody at any time of day or night, unlike the castle keep itself. In recent years, and aided by a Heritage Lottery grant, the Black Gate has reopened as a museum, as well as hosting talks on the local history of the city. Steeped in a history of violent deaths, the likes of which are far worse than can be imagined, and tortured souls seen out their remaining days within these walls before they were taken off to be executed. It's not surprising that the oldest surviving building in Newcastle upon Tyne, the Castle Keep, is unquestionably one of the most haunted buildings in Tyne and Weir, arguably in the entire country. I feel it's only fair to give an additional warning at this stage of the podcast before we start to explore the ghosts of the Castle Keep. One of the stories I'm going to tell is of a truly awful, violent attack that was suffered by a 15-year-old girl inside the castle. If you're likely to become upset or get distressed, please don't listen on. The Castle Keep's most famous ghost has been nicknamed the Poppy Girl. Legend has it that the Poppy Girl was a 15-year-old girl named Bryony, who sold flowers in the town of Newcastle in the late 17th century. She was arrested and thrown into a small cell at the bottom of the Castle Keep just off the garrison room. This cell was full of male prisoners. The men had all been condemned to death and had literally nothing to lose. They took turns raping young Bryony. Within eight days, she died from terrible internal injuries. The men continued having sex with Bryony's lifeless body even in death, up until the point where it was removed from the cell. Having died in such horrendous circumstances, it appears that Bryony has not been able to move on from the castle keep and continues to haunt the garrison room, believed to be the most active room in the castle and the small room just off it, known as the condemned cell. Visitors have experienced the sobbing of a young girl, often when they're in the garrison room alone. A female scream has also been heard on a number of occasions. Some people have picked up on the fragrance of flowers, on occasion leading them to weep inexplicably or be overcome by nausea. It's as if visitors are picking up on the horrors that the garrison room has bore witness to over the last thousand years, and are somehow experiencing the emotions of those who have suffered here for themselves. The chapel, a large room occupying the basement underneath the main staircase, retaining its original 12th century ornate windows and vaulted ceilings, is another room within the castle home to spirits remaining from a bygone age. The chanting of prayer has been heard in the chapel by many visitors. Some visitors also claim it to see a monk in a dark robe knelt in prayer. 
Sometimes the fragrance of burning incense has been experienced in this room. The mezzanine chamber is another hotbed of paranormal activity, including a white light that has been seen to move around before vanishing into a wall. Dark shadows have also been witnessed on numerous occasions. Visitors in the Great Hall have been terrified by sudden loud banging within the room. Mist rising from the floor, then swirling around the room before vanishing has been seen on a number of occasions, most often at night, and is usually accompanied by a dramatic drop in temperature. From the Great Hall, screams have been heard coming from the galleries which run around the top of the room. Dark shadows have also been seen moving swiftly along the corridors. Way back in 2002, on one of my many visits to the castle, staff at the keep told me of a tall man wearing a cloak and a top hat they've seen walk across the Great Hall several times. The Black Gate is also believed to have its fair share of ghosts, mostly centred around the infamous Heron Pit. The pit takes its name from the Sheriff William Heron of Ford, who was governor of the castle for 10 years, from 1247. He had the Heron Pit built at a cost of £32. It's an underground dungeon with no windows or even a door. The only way in or out is from a trapdoor above the pit. The Black Gate also has a second pit, named the Great Pit. The paranormal activity in and around the Black Gate seems to be mostly focused on these two dungeons. Visiting the Black Gate and imagining how frightening those thrown into these pitch-black pits must have felt is in stark contrast to the usual scenes of people sitting around on the grass eating Greg's steak bakes and doing wordle on their mobile phones. People who have been brave enough to climb into these dungeons after dark, especially when in the Heron Pit, have been bitten or scratched by unseen perpetrators. A small child is reputed to haunt the general area of the Black Gate and people have reported stones being thrown at them while nobody is around, as well as hearing growling sounds and seeing swiftly moving black shadows. West Yorkshire Paranormal Group investigated the castle in 2008. While I was writing my book Ghostly Tyne and Weir, Pat Adams Wright, who is sensitive to supernatural occurrences, told me of what lurked within the ancient fortress on the night of their investigation. In Pat's own words, the investigation took place on the 17th of May 2008, a beautiful day that was to end in a very cold night, for more reasons than just the weather. The whole group was filled with eager anticipation, and by the end of the night we had not been disappointed. My first experience began on the approach to the Great Hall, on the winding spiral staircase. In my mind's eye I was being shown a pair of hands holding sackcloth, in which was nestled a man's bits. This definitely caught my attention. It happened again three or four times while walking around the Great Hall, so it was obviously of some significance. Research has since shown that when William Wallace had been hanged, drawn and quartered, pieces of him were shipped all over the country as a deterrent. Among other parts of his body, his unmentionables were sent to the castle keep. Another spirit was also present there, drawing attention to an area higher up. This was someone who had had his right hand blown off by a cannon in an accident on the roof. He was also blown over the parapet and died in the process. A series of solo vigils in the mezzanine chamber brought about the most unusual phenomena of the night. I was sat in the dark, and although it was obvious to me that there was a spirit present, no direct communication was taking place. I then heard the crackle of a walkie-talkie as though someone was trying to get in touch, but no one had used the other one. Replay of the videotape revealed that the crackle of the radio had been covered up with the loudest bang, resembling a metal gate being banged shut. 
The sound was not heard by anybody else in the building, least of all me, who showed absolutely no reaction on tape. On revision of all the solo vigils on tape, it became obvious that somebody in the spirit world seemed to be treading the path along the right-hand wall towards the stairs. In fact, nearly all the participants reported various movements on the stairs. The other highlight of the night for me was the garrison room. I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't what I received, which was a medieval pikeman. He did indeed seem a comic character, with his clothes hanging very loosely from his bones and his hand grasping this very tall pike in relation to his stature. However, when one considers that this soul probably came from the time of siege and his death was probably one of starvation and disease, it loses its comic edge. Also in there was another surprise, a WAAC from the Second World War who couldn't wait to tell me that she'd been stationed there during the war and it had been her billet. It was certainly used as a fire control point during the war, but whether it billeted WAACs or even used them as a fire marshal is still unknown. We were inundated with photographs showing orbs from all areas. We had light anomalies from all over the building, except the chapel, where there was a strong smell of beer that we found intriguing. All in all, it was a wonderful experience, so much so that we rebooked immediately, and the next visit is imminent to cover the areas we missed first time round. While conducting further investigation for Ghostly Tyne and Weir, I also spoke to Jay Brown. In September 2008, he spent a night at the Castle Keep as part of an organised investigation and had a night he'll never forget. This is what Jay had to tell me. The galleries are a narrow walkway running high up around the Great Hall of the Castle Keep of Newcastle. With only a few small windows giving light from outside, it is a dark and claustrophobic place and one corner of the galleries in particular, pitch black and disorientating. There are numerous tales of activity from the galleries, many of which are reported by different witnesses at different times, such as an eerie mist that sometimes appears, a dark figure that's been seen and photographed, and footsteps that can be heard following a lone explorer. Whilst on an investigation of the keep with Northern Ghost Investigations, we had two witnesses who claimed to see a dark robed figure following myself around the galleries. I had just taken a walk on my own around the galleries to check about a couple of others who were on the walkway opposite to where I was. When I came upon them they were ashen faced but excited. They had been standing in one of the balconies that overlooks the great hall and on the opposite balcony to where they were stood they watched a person walk by, silhouetted against one of the windows which they had immediately identified as myself. However, as they continued to watch, another figure floated along the same walkway and again was silhouetted against the window mere seconds after I was. They described the figure as a good foot smaller than myself, I'm six foot three, and dressed in what looked to be a black hood and robe. I immediately gathered our entire group together and we congregated on one of the spiral staircases that leads downwards from the galleries and the two witnesses repeated their story to all. It was decided that we should each take turns to wander alone around the perimeter of the galleries, listening out for the footsteps, hopefully following behind, while others watched from a balcony. As we discussed this plan, a strange feeling of oppression descended upon us. I watched as each person looked at the others around them, wondering if what they were feeling was being felt by the others. A definite presence was with us, and the atmosphere was charged. The first explorer set off for their journey around the galleries and instantly, the presence seemed to leave us. Had it gone to follow her? 
When she returned, although she claimed to have not heard any footsteps, she did say that she had felt like she'd been pushed into the wall at one point, a gentle push that made her stumble. The second and third explorer made their journey around the galleries without reporting anything, but as the fourth person was about to start, once again that strange feeling descended upon us and then left as the fourth explorer set off. Once more, no reports of footsteps were heard, but when he returned, he did claim to hear a slapping sound, as though hands were hitting the wall beside where he walked. There is little doubt that the creepy galleries could play on our imaginations, but a presence which seemingly twice leaves us as a lone explorer does, a woman being pushed against a wall, another man hearing a slapping sound in roughly the same place, and two separate witnesses claiming to see a dark-robed figure following me around as I traverse the galleries. All imagination? Who knows? I'll have to find out more on my next visit to the Castle Keep. Coming up next, way back in 2003, almost 20 years ago, I spent a night I will never forget at the Castle Keep. Also, I will tell you what happened when a fellow investigator who visited the castle a couple of months later and actually invited me to join him experienced something so terrifying, so dangerous, that he turned his back on the paranormal entirely. <laughs> Find out what happened next on How Haunted. On the evening of the 21st of February 2003, I had arranged to stay in the castle keep of the Castle Garth at night. I would be joined by my good friends Andrew Margwell and John Crozier as we investigated the oldest building in Newcastle and one said to be haunted by many, many spirits. I met up with my companions for the evening at about 8pm and we went to get some food and a drink as we talked through what lay in store for us that evening. When 9.45pm came round we headed for the castle, which has to be said looks even more imposing at night. At 10pm we entered through that ancient doorway of the castle keep. Upon entering the castle we were greeted by Paul, the member of staff on duty for our overnight stay. We were offered hot drinks and he asked how we planned to use our time we had in the castle. We asked if we could walk around the castle with the lights on for the first hour so we could explore the rooms including those ones usually closed to the public. Paul went one step better than this and gave us a guided tour of the castle. He started at the very bottom, as we were shown the garrison room and the small connecting room normally closed to the public, called the condemned cell. It's a prison with an ice chamber below it. This is where the poppy girl lost her life in the most horrendous circumstances imaginable. This was a room I'd longed to visit, and the idea of being able to spend time here after dark was a dream come true although it could so easily become a nightmare. 
We visited the chapel next and then worked our way up the castle's spiral staircase stopping at every room while our extremely knowledgeable guide told us about the history of the keep. We stopped off at the vault which is another room normally closed to the public. The mezzanine prison just off the great hall with its strange blood-like stains on the wall. The unfinished staircase where a lot of bizarre occurrences have been reported. We navigated our way through the narrow galleries that run around the highest interior section of the castle. And then we made our way up a short staircase and out onto the castle roof, which will have once been home to the castle's battlements. The view was breathtaking. You castle up on Tyne on a cold February evening certainly is a sight to behold. I am unquestionably biased, but my god I'm lucky to call Newcastle home. The thing I always try and keep in mind when visiting a castle is just what happened here. How many people lost their lives right where you're standing. The horrible and horrific way people were tortured and finally they're released from the suffering. Death. With the time near 11pm it was time for the lights to go out, our torches to come on and time for us to head into the darkness of the castle keep. We decided to follow the same route as our previous well-lit tour of the castle and headed down to the garrison room at the lowest point of the castle. Way back in 2003 I was still very inexperienced when it came to conducting a paranormal investigation. This was only my second one ever, having carried out my first on October the 31st of the previous year for a late night local radio show's Halloween special. So all of the ghost hunters tools of the trade that I now own were not in my backpack that night, hell most of the equipment I use now hadn't been invented back then. So on this night we were relying on the paranormal investigator's best friends. A reliable torch, a good quality camera and our sensors. In the garrison room we stood silently, we turned off our torches and waited. Silence. We asked aloud if there was anyone here with us. Once again we were met by silence. We asked for some sort of sign. Nothing. After a fairly brief ten minutes, we headed to our next location but planned to return later. We entered the prison area up a short staircase from the garrison room, the prison called the Condemned Cell. This is where the poppy girl is believed to remain due to the tragic circumstances of her death. Andy bravely volunteered to climb down into the ice chamber. Above the ice chamber itself, just outside the room, John and I were stood and scanned the cell the poppy girl would have been locked inside below us. It's a very small room with a creepy dummy of an old woman in the corner. I can imagine how cramped that room would have felt with 20 prisoners inside it. 21 if we include poor Bryony. We attempted to make contact with Bryony or anybody else who may have been with us that evening. It felt quiet and peaceful, not at all as I'd imagined or hoped. And try as we might, our questions and requests were met with silence time and time again. After 20 or so minutes, we decided to move on. We headed to the chapel. There are two gravestone sections here, which obviously have been brought in from somewhere else. But who knows, perhaps a spirit may have latched it onto a headstone. I watched them, quietly, intently, hoping that something would show itself to me. I find myself quietly whispering questions, hoping for answers. The chapel has a reputation for being the haunt of ghostly monks, so I found myself reciting the Lord's Prayer in the hope that somebody might join in with me. But alas, it was not to be. Next up was the Great Hall where an incredible photograph would be taken a few months after our investigation by another ghost hunter. Check out the Instagram, 
at how haunted pod to see it. John and I sat on a wooden bench while Andy, feeling brave, went off to explore alone. The key to splitting up on an investigation is to ensure that the two or more parties have constant contact, so if one of us hears something, we can quickly check on the other's location and vice versa. Today I own a set of two-way radios, but back then I asked Andy to simply ensure he didn't walk out of earshot. John and I turned off our torches and sat in silence, watching the doorways of the many rooms that shoot off from the Great Hall. We listened intently, hopefully. Looking up to the galleries which runs around the top of the room, we could see Andy walking along in silence. He was silhouetted against the window. He too had turned off his torch. I checked the time and it was now 11.50. I noticed there was a massive drop in temperature in the Great Hall. Not just a degree or two, but a noticeable change. I wasn't the only person to notice it. Chilly in here, isn't it? Andy said as he rejoined us. I gave him a nod. My first hour was drawn to a close and it had been really quiet. Too quiet. However, that's to be expected when we're looking for something you know so little about. If indeed ghosts do exist at all. I personally compare ghost hunting to fishing. Just because you cast your hook into the water and catch nothing for an hour or so, doesn't mean that fish don't exist. You just need to keep fishing. We agreed that for the stroke of midnight we wanted to be in the poppy girl's condemned cell. We headed down the spiral staircase and through the garrison room and a couple of minutes before the clock struck 12, we were in position. John had brought a voice recorder with him so he set it recording and sat in silence awaiting the bell from the nearby Cathedral Church of St Nicholas chiming in the new day. We recorded audio and we asked questions for around 15 minutes and we heard nothing at all, total silence. We headed back to the Great Hall, sat down quietly, turned off our torches and looked around the room, hopeful. John pressed play on the recorder. We wanted to listen back to the audio now so that if there was something on it, we could act on it rather than listening to it after our investigation when it would be too late to do so. We didn't have to wait long. Wait, what? Play that again, I excitedly blurted out. It was there, clear as day. We listened to it over and over and over. It was unmistakable. We had captured the sound of a female screaming. We tried to rationalise, which is what we always do when we capture something like this. None of us had heard anything, but we were sat next to a door that if it was open would have taken us out into the Newcastle night. And it was Friday night in Newcastle. Could it have been somebody outside? Buoyed by this possible electronic voice phenomena, we decided to go off separately for a short period of time and investigate three separate areas of the castle. I went to the mezzanine prison, John went to the Great Hall, and Andy headed upstairs to the creepy galleries, this time choosing to forgo his torch as his eyes had adjusted to the darkness. We spent 15 minutes on our own and then regrouped in the Great Hall. Anything? I hopefully asked. Nothing. The three of us had experienced absolutely nothing. However, as we spoke, we heard a loud bang come from the well room. We went to see what it could have been, as there's nothing in the room that could have fallen. We sat quietly in the well room, and I asked for anybody who had made the noise to do it again. Nothing. Andy suggested maybe the bang could have came from outside. It is possible, but the very thick walls, and it was a very, very loud bang. Too loud to have been outside? Perhaps, but we'll never know for sure. 
We spent some time in the galleries. The narrow, windy corridors were by far the creepiest part of the castle, especially at this time of night. Every time I turned a corner I expected to come face to face with one of the phantoms believed to call the castle home. But it was so quiet, disappointingly quiet. After a brief visit to a room called the Interpretation Room, which is just off the main entrance, Andy and I headed for the unfinished staircase while John returned to the Great Hall. At the unfinished staircase I asked aloud for some kind of sign that we weren't alone. I asked for anybody there with us that evening to show themselves to us. My requests were ignored, but then it happened. I was stood quietly in the darkness, looking intently all around me. Andy approached the balcony to shout down to John in the hall below us, and at that very moment I saw something. I saw an orb, a bright white light floating maybe five feet in front of me, right at the entrance to the unfinished staircase. I watched dumbstruck for a few seconds as it headed around the corner, into the area where the staircase mysteriously ends. It seemed to leave a white trail behind it. I was mesmerised watching this thing move through the air. After what seemed like an age, I nudged Andy to look at it. But he excitedly shone his torch where I had pointed, and whatever I had seen, or think I had seen, was gone. I could feel the adrenaline coursing through my body. Whatever I had seen, I was desperate for it to return. I told John to come up and join us, but the batteries in his torch had suddenly ran out, and the winding staircase can be dangerous in the dark, so I told Andy to go and retrieve him and leave me alone in the meantime. By the time the two lads rejoined me, doubt had crept into my mind. I was the only person to see the orb, so did I imagine it? Maybe I did, although deep down I feel confident that I really did see it. I know a lot of people roll their eyes when orbs are mentioned when it comes to paranormal investigations, and I get it, I really do. There are so many orbs captured on photos from haunted places, be it on a ghost hunt or just somebody visiting for the day, and it's almost always an insect or dust. However, this wasn't a photograph, I was seeing this with my naked eye. There was no torchlight, no external light in the area at all at the time. What could it have been? I'll never know. We heard the nearby cathedral indicate 1am, rolled around, and our time at the castle keep was over. We headed back to the office near the main entrance where Paul was waiting and we thanked him, and he told us a tale I've never heard before or since. Back in the days when the castle was used for its original purpose of defence, prisoners being held in the castle went on hunger strike. The Virgin Mary appeared to them in a vision and said, Why are you imprisoned here? Go free. And their chains turned to dust. The prisoners made their escape and the guard who was to look after them was executed, as nobody believed his story and assumed that he'd freed them. We'd had an eventful evening. Yes, for long periods of time it was very quiet, far too quiet, and often the building felt empty. But that's to be expected. The most important quality any paranormal investigator has to have is patience. We did get a couple of really interesting occurrences to take away with us as we headed off into the busy Newcastle night. I'm fairly confident that the orb, or whatever it was, was real. It can't have been a trick of the light as the lights were off and our torches were off as well. I may have imagined it, but I suppose I'll never really know for real as nobody else can corroborate it and it was nearly 20 years ago now. The scream on the tape was genuinely chilling. It may have been something, it may have been nothing. Again, we'll never know. The castle keep at night is very unnerving, and I'd be disappointed if a building almost a thousand year old wasn't unnerving at night, alone in the dark. I didn't find the proof that I'd hoped for on that evening, however, 
As fate may have it, it seems that I wouldn't have to wait very long for evidence that the castle keep is indeed home to something very, very dark and very, very dangerous. In the summer of 2003, a few months after I investigated the castle keep for myself, I received an email from a fellow ghost hunter. His email explained that he and his team had an investigation planned at the keep and hoped that I could share our experiences as well as knowledge of the castle to help him with his plan and with his expectations for what lay in store when he crossed the threshold into Newcastle's oldest building late at night. A week or two later I met him for a drink at the Bridge Hotel opposite the castle and we had a pleasant hour or two sat in the sun talking about the horrors that awaited him in the building that we were sat in the shadow of. As I said my goodbyes he asked if I'd like to join him on the investigation that night but I already had plans so I had to decline his kind offer but told him to keep in touch and let me know how it went. A few months passed by and I forgot all about it, but then a conversation about the castle jogged my memory and I dropped him an email to ask how it went. The response I received was chilling, and it made me very pleased that I didn't join him for his night at the castle keep. It read, Hi Rob, sorry I've not been in touch. The night at the castle keep has turned into a nightmare, and I'll never do another ghost hunt again. The investigation itself was mostly uneventful, but it got to around 4am, and as one last desperate attempt to stir up some activity, we did a Ouija board. We asked questions such as, what is your name? How did you die? And the glass moved around the board wildly, bouncing from letter to letter, but not spelling out anything at all. An hour or so later, just as the sun was coming up, we called it a night, and we left the castle and went our separate ways. I was parked nearby, and from the moment I started my short journey home, I felt uneasy as if something wasn't right, but I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. Then I saw it out the corner of my eye. In the reflection in my rearview mirror, I saw a figure sat in the back of my car. I looked away in fear, then looked back again, but nothing was there. I dismissed it as my imagination. It was almost 6am, I was tired. I'd spent all night thinking about, talking about, and looking for ghosts. I got home and my wife was sat up drinking a cup of tea. We had a baby so I wasn't surprised to see her up so early. The baby was asleep upstairs. I popped my head in and she was fast asleep. So I rejoined my wife, sat down and we talked about my night. As we chatted I heard a strange noise. My wife heard it too. It was somebody else talking. Very quiet talking, almost a whisper. And it was coming from the baby monitor. I climbed the stairs to check on the baby and she was still fast asleep. The room was silent, I could hear nothing at all. The baby monitor was two-way so I quietly said to my wife that everything was fine. I could hear the fear in her voice as she said, no it's not. I raced back downstairs to join her and we both stood open mouth at what we heard. It sounded like dozens, maybe hundreds of voices all talking over one another. I ran back upstairs as quickly as I could. I threw the door open and it was still silent in the room. I approached the cot and leant in to check she was okay. Suddenly her eyes opened. She started smiling. I felt movement behind my head and stepped back to find the mobile above her cot slowly spinning. It got faster and faster as my daughter started to laugh. I heard my wife say, get out of there, it's getting worse. I grabbed my daughter and as I did, the door in the room we were in slammed shut. I pulled it open and ran downstairs. As I did, I felt a firm push in my back which almost sent me tumbling but I managed to keep my footing. My heart was racing. I reached the bottom of the stairs and by now the kitchen was full of the sounds of countless voices talking, laughing and screaming. 
all coming through the baby monitor. My wife and I ran out the house and we went to her parents. That was two months ago and we've still not been home. I've spoken to the local vicar about what happened and he said that he can go to the house and he's agreed to perform an exorcism. But even then I don't know if I can face returning to that house after what's happened. It's my fault. I brought something home with me from that bloody castle. Something dark and something that actually tried to cause me and my daughter harm. I won't go looking for ghosts ever again. And I simply don't want to encounter them ever again. I'll never step foot in the castle keep as long as I live. There's something terrible in there. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of How Haunted. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to the castle keeping the Black Gate, including photographs from my investigation back in 2003. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com Feedback, location suggestions and your own experiences are more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get exclusive episodes where you can join me on an actual paranormal investigation and you'll hear the audio from that investigation as it happened. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps you'd prefer to make a one-off donation to support the podcast, why not buy me a coffee? All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. I have a copy of my book, Ghosts of Edinburgh, up for grabs. If you'd like to enter, all you need to do is leave How Haunted a podcast review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. Then drop me an email at rob at how-haunted.com to let me know. The competition will end on Halloween 2022 and the winner will be announced on Twitter and on the first podcast episode following the closing date. Next time out... I will take you to an infamous location that has earned a reputation the world over for being one of the most paranormally active locations on planet Earth. A location that a priest once described as the embodiment of evil. A building designed to kill. We're headed for the county of Northumberland, where together we will dare to enter the terrifying Chillingham Castle. Thank you so much for accompanying me on our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time where we will once again ask the question, How Haunted?
Thank you.